It's something for nothing. The Rush Fan Cast. Jerry and Steve with you. Jerry, you revealed something very personal to me today. Did I really? You did. I didn't intend to. What did I say? You said this is the first show you're actually nervous about doing. That's true. That is very true. I, I have a little bit of a stage fright talking to our <laughs> guest today. <laughs> it's someone that we've been a fan of for, what, 30 years? Something like that? Yeah, too long. Too long. I don't even want to contemplate how long it's been. I'm very excited about this one. You can find us on Twitter. We are at RushFanCast. Instagram, find us at TheRushCast. Email Jerry, TheRushCast at gmail.com. Subscribe via your favorite podcast app. Like us, review us. We like that sort of stuff. The bass intro and outro, that's Lex, of course. And Jerry, I hear you have a great email for us today to get us started. Yes, this is from Brian. What's up, Brian? He lives in Seattle, Washington. Oh, cool. And he says, like all Rush fans, I look forward to every new 40th anniversary edition, and mainly due to the unreleased live material, because despite the plethora of bootlegs readily available, there is very little officially released from the archives. I was disappointed somewhat with the permanent Waves 40th edition because they did not include a complete show. Though this can be easily rectified, a widely available radio broadcast known as the Spirit of the Airwaves provides the missing tunes from the 1980 set list in excellent sound. Mostly the full opener of 2112 and the closing Working Man medley are missing from the official box set. So imagine my delight upon learning that the Moving Pictures package includes a full show from 1981. Comparing this to Exit Stage Left really isn't fair. The original 2LP set was cherry-picked from multiple shows to find the best performances, and then the band did a lot of editing to correct mistakes or problems in the mix. So it's not 100% live, but it is 100% excellent, and one of the best live albums by any band, bar none. Guys, I'm about five years older than you two. I first became familiar with Rush when my older brother brought home all the worlds of stage. This was our jam. I next heard Hemispheres when it was brand new, and then filled in the gap with The Farewell to Kings. So my starting point was full immersion in the classic, proggy, hard rock version of the band. I attended the Moving Pictures Tour in 1981 here in Seattle. Though many of my peers experienced their first live rush with Moving Pictures, I was fortunate to have seen them the year before on Permanent Waves. So being a seasoned veteran from the 1980 show, I was surprised to see everyone coming out of the woodwork to see Rush in 1981. They were the flavor of the month that summer, and the hall was full of casual fans and newbies. Everyone in the world had heard the call of Tom Sawyer beckoning them. Well, needless to say, the show was fantastic from beginning to end. I was delighted to see Hemispheres, Beneath, Between, and Behind, by tour, and in the end represented. And they did six out of seven songs from the new record. Red Barchetta had the old-school video game-style movie where you were driving the car, as seen in the Exit Stage Left concert video. Neil's drum solo was something else, and the trees into Xanadu was mind-blowing. Also, this was the first time I remember the reggae working man fake-out where do they come up with these wacky medley ideas? And La Villa as the encore, same as the 1980 show. Here I will concur with your assessment that La Villa is the best show ender ever. Nice. By the way, the ditty that Alex plays during his intro to La Villa on the new release is called Never on Sunday, a Greek melody that was used as the theme to a 1960 movie of the same name. Don Costa and his orchestra recorded the hit single version, which was in the top 40 in both 1960 and 1961. So Alex and the boys would be familiar with the riff from their childhoods. 
Easy listening instrumentals was a popular genre then. It's amusing to think that only 20 years later, Don Costa was being replaced on the hit parade by Rush, doing such whimsical melodies as Tom Sawyer and Spirit of Radio. And he also includes a link to the song. So if you want, we can drop in a little bit of the original Never on Sunday. All right, let's do it. Let's do it right here. That's amazing. I'll send you. Yeah, isn't it cool? It's, it's awesome. Thanks so much for your excellent work every week. You guys are authentic and don't let any of your fame go to your head. <laughs> <laughs> That's the funniest thing anyone's ever written to us. Fame. <laughs> I did not know that we were experiencing fame. Seriously, you are doing a great service to the Rush community. And that was from Brian. Brian, thanks so much. We are totally not famous. not even almost famous not even almost famous but someone who is famous jer is our next guest today on the rush fan cast we are thrilled to speak with a man we've been a fan of for a long time guitarist and lead vocalist of the hard rock power trio zebra randy jackson welcome to the rush fan cast thanks thanks a lot guys really appreciate you joining us we'd like to start out randy by asking our guests their rush origin story when did you first hear Rush, and how did you become a fan? I think it was probably 1975. It was the first time I heard them. And um, we went, actually, Zebra went to the uh, Rush show, and I'm pretty sure it was 1976 in New Orleans, and got to see them, and they were awesome. Very inspiring. What tour would that have been? 2112, maybe? Yes. Yeah, that would have been the time, yeah. Okay. Did Rush have any influence, not only on your playing, but also on the fact that Zebra is also a trio? No. Uh, Zebra became a trio completely by, kind of forced into being a trio. We we were looking for a singer in the very beginning, and uh, we couldn't find anybody that we thought was good, and the people that were good enough didn't think we were good enough. So <laughs> it just wasn't, it wasn't working out. And... Uh, and so, you know, Felix and I had been in a band. Felix, are the bass player for Zebra, and we had been in a pre-band together before, his band, all original material, and he was the lead singer in that band. Guy, our drummer, he could sing really well. And so the three of us just kind of swapped off singing duties in the very beginning when we started out playing. And, uh, and that was the beginning of the three-piece thing. I think Felix playing the keyboards had more to do with me wanting to do Moody Blues than anything else, you know, <laughs> but we, we started learning rush, uh, you know, some rush songs and, uh, like right around that time, uh, cause people were like just asking for a rush all the time, you know? Now did Rush's success early on give you guys confidence that you guys could be as successful as rush as a trio? It was certainly was great to see, you know, another band that was 
kind of like what we were trying to do, being successful. I mean, up until that point, all the three-piece bands had been bass, guitar, drums, uh, you know, ZZ Top, of which we were big fans of, too, and, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix, and I guess Robin Trower was three-piece, too. You know, but there really weren't any progressive bands that were successful, and Rush was, like, really the first, you know, one you could really point at and say, wow, three guys doing a kind of a progressive rock thing. So, uh, yeah, that was certainly gave us a little more confidence, no doubt. Now, you had said just before that you had gone to see, did you go to see Rush in 1976? Yes, I think that was the year, yeah. With Guy and Felix? Yes. Were you already in Zebra back then? Yeah, Zebra formed in 1975. Wow. Yeah, and uh, I think it was Guy's suggestion that we go to the show, because I didn't even know the show was going on. And so we got tickets and we all, the three of us went, you know. That might be the only show we've ever seen together, actually, <laughs> either before or since. But I do remember that all three of us were there, yeah. Now, one thing Rush and Zebra have in common is the fact you were both compared to Led Zeppelin very early on. When Rush's debut album came out, the comparisons were to Led Zeppelin. When your debut album came out, what was it, seven or eight years later, the same thing. Right. The Zeppelin comparisons. What are your thoughts on that as it pertains to Rush and as it pertains to you guys? I, you know, when I first heard Rush, I mean, I, I, I wasn't even familiar with their first record. Uh, I think the first time I heard it was like that year or the year before, 76, 75. But I didn't really notice that much of a, a similarity to Led Zeppelin from the albums that I heard. You know, I heard a guy with a high voice, mm -hmm. you know, and I heard great chord changes and stuff, you know, and Led Zeppelin and Rush had both of those. But I guess at, at the end of the day, I can listen to my music and the stuff we did on the first album. And there's certainly, you know, a Zeppelin influence there on some songs. But, uh, you know, like I said, I wanted to do Moody Blues and also uh, the Beatles. I was really big influenced a lot by the Beatles. And so uh, but I guess Zeppelin was the the hard rock kings. And since we were coming off as a kind of a hard rock band, they got to compare us to something, you know, and that was it. Well, let's talk a little bit about Zebra's first album because steve and i both really love oh thanks the first zebra album so how did that come about if, if zebra had been a band at that point for eight years i suppose yes if i'm doing my math correctly lead us through a little bit about how the band progressed maybe from the early days where you're doing covers to you know getting your first record deal well you know we never stopped doing covers we were never ever a complete completely cover band. I mean, I think we were doing originals right out of the gate, but we would run into uh, situations along the way where club owners would ask us not to play originals. And so we didn't think they really knew the difference between an original and a cover anyway, so we just wouldn't announce it as our song. We would just play the song, and that was it. And they never knew. We never had a complaint after the show or anything. They didn't know whether it was an original or not. And actually, we didn't really do an announcement that this is one of our songs for in, in general anyway, because it really wasn't a fair way to get feedback, I thought. You know, when you had people coming to see us, you know, like like you walk off the stage and you go ask your mother, how, how'd you like my, my original song? And she goes, oh, it's so great, you know. Right. Nobody's going to tell you the truth, you know. Yeah. Uh, so we would wait to get kind of feedback. And, and I think one of the great things about not announcing that the songs were ours was that people would start asking us, what is that song that y'all played? 
and they would describe part of the song. And a lot of times it would be an original song. And then we would tell them, oh, that's our song, you know? And we could get a, a, a good gauge of how the originals were going over live, you know, besides the response at the end of the song. So we just, you know, in 75, 76, 77, we had come to New York, 78, we had done some demos that were shot to a bunch of major labels. And uh, Atlantic Records actually told us in 1978 that the stuff was good, but it was dated. If we had come to them 10 years earlier, you know, they might have signed us, but, you know, we were dated at that point. Now, this demo had uh, Take Your Fingers From My Hair, Who's Behind the Door, Wait Until the Summer's Gone, One More Chance. You know, I mean, it was pretty representative of what was going to go on the first album anyway. But, you know, we didn't get any more positive response from anybody else. And, and by 1980, 81, we were still trying. We went out to California and made some demos and we recorded uh, Tell Me What You Want is one of the demos. And we had someone else shopping for us out there, a guy named Jim Recor, who was uh, managing us for a short while. And uh, he wasn't getting anywhere with it e either. So we came back to New York around 1981, and um, we just, you know, we were making great money. I mean, for a cover band, you know, quote unquote, we were doing great. And so I was kind of resigned to the fact that, it, you know, we're just not going to get a record deal. It ain't going to happen. And so I bought a house with my wife down in uh, Louisiana. We were going to just go back and settle down there, just continue what we were doing. And then a radio station in New York started playing our demos program director to station on Long Island, WBAB. And uh, he started playing our music and people started, you know, requesting it a lot. We didn't have any record out, so they couldn't go buy it. And uh, before we knew it, we had like the top five songs on the station, top five requests. And uh, it was a guy from Atlantic Records who had just started at Atlantic named Jason Flom. It was just like his first job there. And he was sent out to WBAB to play a song for Atlantic and kind of push the product that they had at the time. And Bob Buckman, he was talking to Bob Buckman, and Bob told him, you guys really are missing the boat here. We got this band that's, uh, you know, got the top five requests. You know, they're, they're from around here, and, you know, they don't have a record deal. And so uh, Jason says to him, oh, you mean like they've got the top five requests of the local bands here? He mm -hmm. says, no. Now, uh, see, ACDC is down here back in black. And, uh, <laughs> you know, in through the outdoor is like, you know, or they had all of my love at the time was the single then. And they're all down in the five to ten thing. But we had the top five spots. And he's like, Jason didn't believe him at first, you know. But after, like, he convinced him, he took the tape back to Atlantic Records. And there was a new president at the time, Doug Morris, who wasn't there when the tape first came. So... He gave the tape to Doug, and Jason had a way to get to the president. I mean, you don't, you don't start working for Atlantic Records and walk into the president's office with the tape. It doesn't happen. But Jason's father was on the board of directors of Warner's, and that was how Jason got the job anyway. But, you know, they're starting him at the pretty much the bottom like everybody else, but he did have access to Doug. So he brought it into Doug. Doug took the tape, and uh, years later we found out that after we had been signed that Doug went to – get in his car to be driven back home in Long Island. And he put the cassette in, in the back of the, uh, back of the car and started playing the tape. And the first song on the tape was Who's Behind the Door? And there's the long acoustic mm -hmm. intro. 
And evidently he listened to about 30 seconds of it and just ejected it. You know, there was no, there was no hook there. This was going nowhere. The vocal hadn't even started yet, you know, but fortunately for us, the song was being played on the radio and the station in that, uh, that radio happened to be tuned into WBAB. Hmm. It wasn't his car. It was just like a limo, you know? So he's like kind of confused. He's listening to it and he has the tape. He puts the tape back in and, listens and sure enough he's sure this is the same song so he pulls the thing out and listens to it on the radio the whole song and uh, and at the end the, the the dj says that's the number one requested song the wbab for the last three months who's behind the door and voila we have a record deal so you and felix and guy were you all from new orleans and you picked up and moved to new york no no just felix and i we felix and i both were born in new orleans grew up went to school in new orleans Guy was born in Oakland, Sacramento, actually, California. And uh, Guy was working in Lake Tahoe when he was about 20 years old. And he had met a girl there that he had gotten together with. And she wanted to break up. She went to New Orleans. And Guy kind of chased her, found out where she was and chased her down there. And, you know, he he did find her. It was Mardi Gras. And they hooked up again. But then again, it wasn't going to work. So Guy, Guy loved New Orleans. So he just stayed there. And uh, met Guy a while later through a mutual friend, uh, Keith Rebels, who was managing a, a club in the French Quarter. And then you guys just picked up and moved to New York when you got the record deal? Yeah, that was 1970. In 1976, we were really doing well in New Orleans. I mean, it, it had taken us about a year and a half, but we were packing all the, the clubs there were to pack. And it just didn't seem like there were going to be any record companies knocking on our door in New Orleans to sign a rock band so we figured we better get in where they were you know either los angeles or new york and we knew somebody in new york we had some friends that had family in new york and somebody in the family knew somebody that owned a club up here so we flew the club owner down in new orleans to come see us play and you know he was ready to you know bring us up to new york and uh so we were all excited his name was lee feldman lee owned the clubs and uh so we were going to go in the summer of 76. That was going to be when we came to New York. So we're all ready to go. We've done our final gig before we're leaving. You know, Zebra goes to New York. We upped our price from $2 to $3. Come <laughs> see the band to make a little extra money. Go away. And it was a big success and place was packed. And, and here we are the next day ready to go. And we get a phone call from Lee. And he says, uh, listen, fellas, uh, you know, I, I don't know if we should do it right now. You know, I have a couple of gigs for you here at the clubs I own, but, you know, some of the other club owners aren't so, you know, convinced yet. And uh, I think I just need a little more time with them because I don't want you just come up here and doing two shows and then going back, you know. Maybe we should just wait. And so we were kind of like, you know, we were had been so excited about going. We are disappointed, but, you know, he, he had to know what he was doing. So we decided we'd wait. So we're planning on going up there in December of that year. And we, uh, and so we do the same thing again. Zebra's going, we're really going to New York this time. (laughs) (laughs) And we do the show, same exact scenario. We're ready to go. Phone call comes. Listen, fellas, you know, it's just, I think it's the time of the year. It's just really cold right now. And it's one of the worst winters we've ever had. You know, I just think we should wait till it gets thawed out, you know? And so I'm like in disbelief at this point, you know, 
who even knows if he's telling the truth or not, you know? So I hung up with him and I said to Felix and the guy, you know, listen, it's the same story. I said, he didn't say we couldn't come. We got three choices. We can go hide out for a couple of months somewhere and lie to people and tell them we've people <laughs> and come back, you know? Uh, we can tell them, you know, that we're not going right now and we're going to do it again later. I said, or we can just tell him we're coming. Be ready. It doesn't matter. One gig, a half a gig, it doesn't matter. We're on our way. So that's what we chose to do. We had already bought a PA system in October that was supposed to be ready for us, and we were going to pick it up in Memphis on the way up to New York. And so we weren't, it couldn't stop the wheels. So we headed up to New York. Of course, we get to Memphis, and the sound system isn't ready yet. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's had like months. Oh, it'll be ready next week. Six weeks later, nothing. And so we had to do some uh, fancy finagling to get the sound system done the next day. And the guy did do it. And we made it up to New York and we did our first gig in New York on New Year's Eve, 1976. Uh, and we were playing with a band on Long Island called Rat Race Choir. And we just swapped doing sets with them. We, op we opened the show. They did a set, we did a set, they did a set. And it was a great intro to New York for us because up until then, our idea of New York was the New York Dolls, at least on this level. You know, we had seen the New York Dolls down in New Orleans and they had come through town and we went to see them and we weren't too impressed, although they were very funny. It was like a comedy. I mean, uh, David Johansson came out in a Frankenstein mask and he's got a cigarette in his mouth, you know. <laughs> about halfway through the show, about four girls come running in, you know, to the front of the stage screaming like, you know, it's the Beatles or something, you know. And the whole crowd's just standing there like, what is this, you know. And everybody's just, it's mainly musicians from New Orleans just checking them out, you know. So it was very weird and that wasn't that impressive. Uh we had met the Good Rats, though, and the Good Rats had played in New Orleans, and they were a great band. Uh, but Rat Race Choir was doing kind of what we did, you know, some similar music, and they were just outstanding. So now we knew, all right, there's real, there's real musicians here in New York, you know, besides uh, David Johansson. So that's, uh, that, was, that was how we got to New York. And the album came at a perfect time, that first album, because MTV was just really gearing up, too, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, for us, I think MTV, you know, really helped to push the album. One of the issues, though, with even getting a video made was that when our album first came out, we sold like 75,000 copies in two weeks. And Atlantic, you know, had never seen anything like that from a new band before. They were like, wow. And you'd think that they would put money behind it then, take some of that money they just made, you know, close 750 grand easy you know from them back then from the, the what they were selling it for and uh, and put it towards promotion but they didn't the sales went 75,000 the first two weeks and then they just dropped off because all the people from New Orleans and New York that were our fans had just bought it at that point we had sold that many records from just the fans and then it just went into kind of a lull so they were slowly trying to get us airplay around the country and we were out on the road. We had gotten a, uh, we might have been out with Loverboy at that point. But in any case, what it took was we got a radio station in, in, um, in St. Louis 
Casey started playing us, playing Who's Behind the Door, and evidently they had sold seven records in St. Louis. That was the number. <laughs> seven records all over St. Louis, and that was the key to them deciding to make a video. So they brought us in. When that happened, they saw that the airplay actually did turn into actual record sales. We made a video. They got it played on MTV, and then next thing you know, we're getting added all over the country on the radio, and now we're selling records again, you know? So it's pretty interesting, you know? You mentioned you were on the Loverboy tour. How was that decision made? Is that the record company that decides who you're hooking up with, or do you guys have a say in that? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think we really had a say in it. I think, um, you know, it, it had to be after we started selling some records. Our manager, Mark Puma, had gotten different offers from uh, bands that weren't playing arenas, but uh, Loverboy was in the arenas at that point. Mm -hmm. And I do know that Don Fox, who uh, was a big promoter in New Orleans and had booked Zebra at a couple of his places, a place down there called The Warehouse, and he was very aware of us, was also the promoter for the Loverboy tour. And I think he had gotten Loverboy to open up for Journey when they were just starting out. So I think he probably had something to do with us getting that connection. You know, it's who you know, really. Mm -hmm. And um, and so, you know, we got on the Loverboy tour and it, it really helped out, you know, playing the arenas and uh, in front of all those people. And it was good. You know, just being the Rush fans that we are, Randy, I just wonder what it would have been like to see you guys open for Rush back in 1980 <laughs> or 1981. What a perfect match that would have been. It would have been great, you know, and uh, it's odd how even though we were like an 80s band, there's so many bands we could have played with that we didn't play with, you know. That might have been a better match than who we were playing with, you know, that, that we eventually did play with. But um, but the Loverboy tour was, was great for us, and they were, you know, they had great songs and uh, big crowds every night. So it, it really worked out. Now, you also have done Rush covers. I think in two was it two thousand ten that subdivisions a tribute to Rush came out, where you sang on three different songs, right? Distant Early Warning, Subdivisions, and A Farewell to Kings. Right. How did those choices come about of all of the Rush songs to choose from? I didn't make the choices. Uh, I got called, you know, and it was a you know a record that was being done by a bunch of different musicians, and I got the call, and they asked me if I would do it. I said sure, and then they said. They just said, Can, would you do this, this, the, the, those three songs? And I said, sure. So that was how that happened. I wasn't looking to particularly do any song, particular song, you know? One of the highlights, Randy, and we've seen Zebra, Jerry, how many times? 20, 30 times, something like that? Yeah, something wow. like that. One of the highlights of seeing Zebra live is your incredible work on the 12-string acoustic. The songs Bears, as you mentioned, Who's Behind the Door comes to mind. Time is another great one. Alex was a master of this also. How do you decide which songs to uh, feature that 12-string acoustic? Is that just your go-to acoustic guitar? Well, it is now. I don't even remember playing a six-string acoustic on any song that Zebra ever recorded. I don't ever remember that. I, I mean, I did used to, I, of course, I had six-string acoustics back in, you know, when I was growing up, but I just loved the sound of the 12 string. And, and I think at one point I just said to myself, why does anybody play a six string when you can make it sound like this? <laughs> so, 
So I, I, I do know that I, you know, even when I started playing solo acoustic stuff about, you know, 30 years ago, going out solo, I brought a six string out with me just to play some things like maybe a Blackbird or stuff that you were used to hearing with a six string. And then I just said, I'm going to do this on the 12 string. It's not making that much of a difference. So it was much easier. I just like the way it sounded. And so anything that had needed an acoustic guitar was going to get a 12 string. How the thing was tuned was a different matter. It had more to do with the song. So who's behind the door and time, as you mentioned, our uh, open tuning on open G and Bears was a regular tuning. And, but that was because that's the way the songs were written. You know. Now, I've seen cover songs that you've done, one of them being A Farewell to Kings, that you do acoustic. Can you tell us a little bit about that arrangement? Because that is such an interesting song to approach acoustically. Yeah, we did not do the acoustic part of that song when we did the car. We just did it when the, you know, when, when it got heavy with the drums. And we ended it at the end before the acoustic finishes the song. Right. And that was just the way we did it. I mean, I listened to the other stuff, but we were kind of like, okay, and then we could go right into this next song, you know, from there. And uh, I guess it was just we edited it. That's all. <laughs> we never did play that part. We learned Spirit of the Radio also. And uh, we did that one from beginning to end. And uh, what else was there? Passes to Bangkok. Brought the train to Bangkok. Yeah. And that one we did from the beginning to the end also. But Farewell the Kings. And people would ask, you know, why don't you do the acoustic thing? And I'd say, yeah, we got to learn it. We got to learn it, but never, never did happen. That's all. Yeah. Randy, can you talk a little bit about Alex Lifeson's playing? What would you say about Alex makes him so unique as a guitarist? Well, he's definitely got his own style and you can, you know, it's him playing when you hear it, you know, I think it's more just the fact that his fingers just make the guitar sound different than other people's. You know, if, if you're talking about him being compared to like uh, Led Zeppelin, I, I don't really hear that at all. You know, he's I hear a little blues in his in his playing. You know, he's he knows how to bend those notes and stuff like that. But they definitely Rush had their own completely own style. I think they finally convinced the world of that. And Alex was a big part of that. He was melodic and flashy when it needed to be. He wasn't just up there shredding. You know, he was. He was a, a melodic guitar player and a real musician, you know, a, a writer, a crafter of melody for solos. I can't really compare him to anyone else. I wouldn't be able to pick a guitarist that I think sounds like him or that he sounded like, you know. Learning songs, you know, it was evident to me that I was learning parts that you know, there was nothing similar to it, you know, and I'd been a big Almond Brothers fan, Cream fan, Hendrix, uh, you know, all the guitar players up until that point that I was learning stuff. And, and it was definitely a different experience having to try to cover his, uh, his solos and stuff. And he's a very versatile player too, right? He's. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, that goes without saying, I mean, you know, they covered a lot of area. Their writing was, you know, covered a lot of area. They were very dynamic and he would, appropriately do what was necessary for uh for the style that was uh, written so let's talk a little bit about vocals randy your vocal style is i would say very similar to getty's and like getty you've stayed in fantastic voice for over 40 years how difficult is it to 
keep your voice in such amazing shape and hitting all those high notes for four decades like Getty has? You know, I've been fortunate. I think, though, early on, because we were playing a lot in the early days when, when we first started, you know, playing the club scene in uh, New Orleans and New York. And, you know, there was a lot of Led Zeppelin that people were asking for. So that was high. A lot of that was high. And, of course, the rush. And, you know, I ended up doing those vocals mainly. Felix and Guy would both sing, you know, a lot of the other covers, but I ended up doing it. And I think what it was for me was that I wasn't up there as the lead singer. And so if my vocals weren't so great at a certain time, I could just, okay, the guitar solo is coming up. I'll make <laughs> up for it here, you know? So I was never like in a position where I had to make the vocals so great in every song. And if I came to a spot where I didn't think, I was going to be able to sing it right, I would, would go into my falsetto range quicker, you know, or maybe sing it lower, where it wasn't as powerful as I would like it to have been, but I'm at least hitting the note. And through doing that, you know, consistently, it saved my voice from, from getting ratty because I wasn't really pushing it up there. And because I was switching between the two sets of vocal cords that you use to do the two different voices or three, whatever amount of different settings let's call it in your voice i wasn't like taxing my voice as much you know i wasn't using the same muscles all over again and we and zebra from the beginning we never had a set list when we'd walk on stage i mean they would let me kind of pick the songs as we went along because a lot of it had to do with where i was vocally at the point and who knew better than me so it worked out if i start feeling like i really just needed to take a break i would have felix or guy sing a song or i'd do a song that was a lot easier and I think that really helped a lot to keep my voice from uh, deteriorating, you know? Now, what would you say, if you're thinking about like Rush's different areas and different eras that they've played in, what's the, what do you think is the sweet spot of the Rush sound? Their 70s, their 80s? Yeah, it's, it's the 80s. It's the Tom Sawyer. It's, you know, and, you know, there were a lot of people going, oh, they, they sold out. And I'm like going, oh, they didn't. You know, this is great. You know, it's awesome. And uh, I think the same. It's just, I think it's more the success thing. I, I know Metallica, you know, when the Black Album came out, they were accused of selling out too, you know. But, you know, those are the greatest songs. And, and I still think that that, that, that album, uh, when it came out, that's why it got so much play. I mean, they still had their distinctive style, you know, Rush. Did and they and the, and they were progressive. I mean, Spirit of the Radio. I mean, it was just you know, come on, what more do you want? <laughs> you know, give us a break. You know, and uh, that's my favorite right there. So, Randy, because Zebra, like Rush, is a power trio, requires you and Felix to play multiple instruments on stage. But Getty takes it a step further, doesn't he? You know, with all the samples, the bass, the keyboards, the vocals. What are your thoughts on how Getty pulls that off on stage? given what you guys do? You know, it's a uh, like a one-man band kind of thing. You know, you have like uh, the organ grinder with the monkey and everything else going on. You just, <laughs> you know, you got to see how much you can do. So, uh, you know, we, at one point, you know, I was playing keyboards on some songs and, uh, you know, we had bass pedals also, you know, we just didn't go for all the samples and stuff. You know, we used the keyboards mainly to trigger the sounds we were already using on the keyboards when Felix would just play keyboards, you know, for songs that we needed the bass guitar on. And um, it, it was 
very different than what Rush Rush was doing. You know, I think there's ways of programming chords to play while you're pushing the pedals. You know, and we do that now. But um, you know, as far as actually doing it, it's practice. You know, and it's just like I tell people that ask me, you know, how do you play and you sing at the same time? You know, I just can't do it. I said, you got to do it slow. You got to do it really slow. I said, so, you know, if you're talking like Getty doing something, you know, you got to push down the bass pedals first. You do that first and then you play the bass note and then maybe there's another bass note and the vocal starts. And if you can't do it all at once, you just need to practice and then eventually you'll get it up to speed, you know. And moving around. I mean, you look at some of the drummers that are out there today, you know, using samples and stuff. And, you know, these guys are using all four, two hands and two legs and, and then singing at the same time, too. It's, you know, it's just a matter of being able to do these things, you know, without thinking, you know. And the more you do it, the more you can do new things without having to practice so much. So, so what's on the horizon for you musically? What are you doing right now? Well, Zebra's playing live. Uh, a lot more since the pandemic's kind of slowed down. Guy, who just turned 70, he's playing better than he ever has played. And it's amazing. Wow. I mean, with, and he still is ferocious. I mean, it's, it's not like he's technically better. It's like he's just, he's technically better and just as intense with his playing, hitting as hard as ever. And that amazes me. We haven't done a, a studio record in 20 years. I guess that's my fault, but after the Zebra 4, I just, you know, I thought that that was like my, okay, we're all adults. The, we're adults now, and this is the adult album for us, you know, and just didn't have anything to really say. So I had written a lot of songs, but lyrically, there were, really wasn't a lot for me, but I've got some things now and ideas about how to approach the record. And, you know, we've actually been doing a little bit of recording between last January and, and now, it's slow, but it's going to get a little quicker, I think. So I'd like to get another record done soon. And, um, you know, other than that, I mean, the way we've been making a living is playing live, you know, with uh, this between the Zebra shows and uh, for myself performing with the different symphony orchestras doing uh, either Pink Floyd or, or Led Zeppelin and then doing solo acoustic shows. You know, I've been really fortunate to be able to, uh, you know, make a living. Felix does the same thing, playing with different groups, you know, and so Zebra's certainly part of the income, but the main income's been the uh, performing live for all of us, you know. Records are still selling, but certainly not going to, uh, we're not millionaires by any stretch. One more similarity, Randy, between Rush and Zebra is just the longevity. What does it take for three musicians to stay together happily making music for 40 years? It's, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it is. One thing that really helped that we was not due to any one of us was that because you can see how politics is just interfering with everything that goes on today, especially the last like decade, we all had pretty much the same political views. So we've never had to have arguments about that. The arguments that we did have were really early on, uh, the first five years when we'd get into, you know, like, heated debates over the music or, you know, being late or anything that the bands go through. But after the first five years is over, you know, I think in order to stay together, you have to realize that you're not going to change somebody else at that point. You can't keep living with the expectation that 
your other band members are going to do something now that you wish you wanted them to do. You got to accept where they are, expect only that. And if something more happens, great, but don't expect it. And that'll keep everything cool, you know? And I think that's what all three of us did, you know? Um, you know, we all had our limits or we had our habits. And I think we had gotten used to that. And then we, you know, just kind of glided along with playing, with the, you know, playing and performing. And it became a lot easier at that point. Although I don't think we consciously, did that, you know, sat down and said, oh, we're going to just accept that, you know, I hate your guts or you hate like a pig or, you know, I leave the bathroom door open or anything like that. I think that's what happened because I really did notice that, uh, you know, although we would have times where we'd sit down and go, yeah, man, well, I know you you did this, you did that. We, we would leave the past behind, you know, and not bring it up so much in current discussions. And uh, I think that really helped a lot. And Plus the fact that the fans have always been there for us. I, don't, I, I really don't know if we weren't actually making a living doing it, you know, a real living where you could have a, a real family, you know, because I've got my wife and I have been married for 40, 41 years now. And uh, I don't know if we would have stayed together if the fans weren't behind us all this time, but we've never had a year where we didn't have great turnouts for the shows, you know, and, and because we're three piece, you know, we were able to, uh, you know, pull it off. So, Well, Randy, you can count us among your adoring fans. Thank you so much for all the amazing music and for entertaining us live over the past, what, 30 years we've been seeing them, Jer? Yeah. Did you guys see us the first time together? Were you together? Oh, yeah. We used to go to the Club Benet in Sayreville every time you guys played there, and I'm sure you remember that. Absolutely. And we'd be right up front. Right up front. (laughs) You wouldn't recognize us. It's been a long time. Now, did you eat the steak or the fish? Oh, man. (laughs) We ate there once, Randy, and it wasn't great. I'll be honest. You were great. The food wasn't. They had the three choices, you know? Right. Steak, skin, or fish. And a picture of Regis Philbin in the back. Oh, yeah. That was his spot. He used to always talk about it. And I do remember he was on his show one time when he was on TV, and he goes, I'm going to be at the Club Bene, but who is this zebra? It's, uh, for some reason, he was irritated about us playing there or something. Like we were, we had, were playing on his day or so, his normal day or something. It was, it was pretty funny. That is funny. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much for sharing your stories about Rush and stories about Zebra. Thanks for joining us on the Rush Fancast, Randy. We really appreciate it. Oh yeah, no, thanks for having me. I've had a good time. So, Jared, did your nerves go away as soon as we started talking to Randy? They did, of course. <laughs> I, I, I. I I slipped into semi-professional mode, didn't I? You did. You did. What a great guy. Yeah. I'm so glad. It was Beth Patterson who is friends with Randy. So that's uh, she hooked us up with him. So I'm forever grateful to her. Yeah. Once she mentioned that she was friends with Randy, we said, oh, we got to we gotta ask her for his <laughs> number, right? Right. Exactly. And he was so kind to join us and uh, tell us stories about Zebra's origins and his love of Rush. Just fantastic. Yeah, I'm so glad he was able to do it. Yeah, and I'm serious. I think it would have been so great for Zebra if they hooked up with Rush on a tour, wouldn't it have been? Oh, yeah. I mean, we saw, try to think of what tour they could have played with. See, I'm not sure if we would have seen them, though, right? Oh, we wouldn't have seen it, but I'm just saying it would have been good for Zebra. I mean, look, nothing against Loverboy, but they're not in the same genre as Zebra is, at least to me. That's right. Yeah. 
You're right, Steve. You're always right. (laughs) Anyway, I hope our listeners enjoyed that conversation with Randy Jackson. You can find us on Twitter. We are at RushFanCast. Instagram, find us at TheRushCast. Email Jerry, TheRushCast at gmail.com. Tell Jerry what you thought of our conversation with Randy. Subscribe via your favorite podcast app. Lex, he did the bass intro and outro. And Jerry's got a great quote to wrap this up. I do, and it's probably no surprise that it's a zebra song. Of course it is. <laughs> From Who's Behind the Door, a great song. Great song. How can we find out more? Who owns the keyless door? Where does the cycle end? Who are the unwatched men? Where do we go from here? Faith is a fading fear. Life is a waiting room. I hope they don't call me soon. I always love that line. Life is a waiting room. That's a great line. It is. Thanks, Jer. All right. See you later.